Father, we gather here this morning as a church of people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, not by works, lest anyone should boast, not by our own might, not by our own power, but by Your infinite grace. And it was the blood of Your Son which purchased us. It's the blood of Christ which makes us holy, which makes us somehow mysteriously pleasing in Your sight. And so we're a church this morning that can do nothing but respond, that can do nothing but stand in awe and praise You. And we ultimately come to do nothing else. Not here out of guilt. Not here to try to earn your favor, earn your pleasure. But just to to bask in your grace. And your grace is most clearly manifest towards the church. And so this morning I, I cry out to you that you would unfold these truths which are self-evident in the Scriptures to the men and women here who make up this particular church, Cornerstone Bible Church. Oh Lord, help us to grasp these things this morning. If they're not new, that they would refresh us, and if they're new, that they would blow us away. And that we would see that You first loved us, and You sent Your Son, and He has purchased us to be a people for your own possession, zealous for good deeds, that we would lift high the cross, that we would lift high your grace, and that we would proclaim it to the nations. Stop your works. Stop trying to earn your salvation and step into Christ and get saved. And so, Lord, may we be mindful of that this morning, worship you because of it, and leave here and live for Christ and minister to one another in light of it. In your name we pray. Amen. I'll title this sermon this morning, uh, The Grace of God Displayed Towards the Church of the Redeemed. This is our final series, final sermon in our series, FOF series, which James mentioned really is the foundation of what our church is. These doctrines that we've gone through the last nine weeks that we hold to be uh, the key doctrines, doctrines that we cannot turn away from, uh, doctrines which this very body of believers is built upon. And so if we change these doctrines that we've preached in the last nine months, we would be utterly changing the foundation of this church. And ultimately, we would be changing the foundation of the gospel itself. Because every one of these doctrines that we have preached flows out of the gospel of God's grace. And it's the same with this this morning. This ecclesiology, this doctrine of the church... It ultimately flows out of the gospel. It flows out of soteriology. It it flows out of what Jesus Christ has accomplished through the cross. And so this morning I want to preach to you how the grace of God is displayed towards the church of the redeemed. And I want to emphasize how the very existence of the saints which make up the church are reflections of God's mighty grace. In the beginning, God made Adam in His image. God made Adam in the image of God. And God was pleased with man because man being made in the image of God in some ways reflected and displayed God and had fellowship with God. He, he, he magnified God back to Him. 
But man rebelled, attempted a coup d'etat, sought to usurp God's right to the throne, sought to usurp God's authority, tried to take down God and, and cast Him off and, and set Himself up on the throne where only Yahweh, where only the great I Am can reign. With the result that God brought His curses upon man. And since that time, man has dragged the image of God through the mud and he has made the image of God through his own flesh into what is a horrid image. He has defiled the image of God and we have taken what was to be a reflection of the glory of God and we have made it a wretched display, not so much of God, but of our father, the devil. So the scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, all of us fall short of bearing the image of God the way He created us to bear it. By being created in the image of God, but living wicked lives, we smear the glory of God. We defile the glory of God. For all have sinned and failed to display the glory of God. And with that swoosh, there is separation between you and God forever. And so now the greatest question posed to man, the greatest question posed to man is, how do you, how do I, a sinner, get right with a holy God? That is perhaps the most defining question you can ask any person on the face of the earth. How do you get right with God? And everybody's got an answer. Everybody's got an answer. But I think ultimately it can be boiled down to two. That question can, is ultimately boiled down to two answers. The first answer rests on you. And the plan consists of you working to be a person, working with all of your might, working with everything you have to try to get yourself right with God. And you've got to labor and labor your guts out and do all you can possibly can in hopes that for some reason God will look at you and be pleased with what you're doing. But God gives an answer for that. Isaiah 64, 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Romans 3.20 Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Galatians 2.16 Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Romans 10.3 For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And you read Romans 10 and you read Romans 9, it flows into that. And it's unfolding to you the answer of men who are trying to get themselves right with God through their works. And the modern day answer to that is every single church and every single religion that you see down the street where they are doing penance and they are doing their Hail Marys and they are participating in the sacraments in the hopes that God will look upon them and say, I see you're making an effort. I see you're working hard to try and get right with me. 
And yet God says all those attempts are futile. And the second answer is boiled down to one person and one person only. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. He is the end of the pursuit of righteousness before a holy God. He is the end of the pursuit of justification. The Bible says you will labor for all of eternity to try to get righteous and holy with me and it will end in your death. It will end in me and my righteousness and because of my justice having to cast you away from my presence in hell forever because you cannot please me. But Christ can please God. And through Christ, the pursuit ends. Through Christ, the eternal finish line is placed not a universe away, not a marathon distance away, not a Hail Mary away, not a good work away, but it's placed right at your feet. It's placed right before you. The pursuit of pleasing God is not in your religious duty. It's not in your church going or your Bible reading or your praying. The pursuit of pleasing God is you putting your faith in the only person that pleases God, namely His Son. God declared at the baptism of Christ, where Christ is there, Matthew three sixteen to 17 God declared, He shouts out from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so God makes you pleasing to Himself by placing you in the Son who is pleasing to Him. You get right with God by putting your faith in the One who took your infinite offenses, washed them away, gave you His righteousness, and now you are in Christ and you please God because He looks at you and He doesn't see you. He doesn't see what you've tried to do. But He looks at you and He sees what His Son did for you. It doesn't stop there. That's the beginning. From that moment of conversion, from that moment where a man comes to recognize that he had nothing good in himself and no good work to please God. And when God opens his eyes to see the glory of Christ and a man steps by faith into Christ, says, Christ, I need your righteousness. I need salvation in you. And when a man puts his faith in Christ, God begins to do something radical. He begins to take that sinner, that person, and He begins by His sovereign grace to mold Him and shape Him and conform Him into the likeness of the One who brings Him the most pleasure. All the texts I'm going to read to you now, they're in your outline there, beginning in Romans 8.29. All, all these texts prove, all these texts show you what is God's purpose in saving you. Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. 
Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What's the good work? The good work is God making you like Christ. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete, finished, mature. How? In Christ. In Christ is maturity. In Christ is perfection. In Christ's likeness is perfection. Colossians 3.10, and having put on the new self, who is what? Who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created Him. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. It does not appear as what yet we shall be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. This is the telos. This is the end of what God is doing in your life this morning. Why? Why all this transformation? Because the person whom God delights in the most of all the peoples is the person of His Son. If God's chief end is to glorify Himself forever, and if Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form, and God's greatest glory is displayed through His Son dying on the cross and purchasing men and making men like Himself, then it could only be that for God to be glorified in us and through us, He must conform us to the One which brings Him the most glory. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Follow closely. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things, things in the heavens and on earth. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope would be to the praise of His glory. You also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption. Do you see that? You read that text, and you take out Christ, and you have nothing. You take out you being in Christ and the whole text is works. The whole text is you making yourself pleasing to God. The whole text rests upon you and the whole text is absolutely futile unless God, before the foundation of the world, predestined and chose to place you in the Son who brings Him pleasure. The whole text, the point of the whole text is that all of God's goodness in all of God's grace 
flows through one single conduit, through Christ. And so I say, not point number three, but point number two there in your outline, what does this have to do with the church? What does this have to do with the church? Ephesians 1, and 23, He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself, the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 3.6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and are fellow partakers of the promise. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, for even as the body is one, yet has many members. For the body is not one member, but many. Now you are Christ's body. The entire gospel rests on Christ. The entire purpose of the church rests on Christ. Salvation is God saving you and not just placing you into Christ, but placing you into the body of believers. The very foundations of ecclesiology are based upon soteriology. If this church does not start with gospel that is in Christ alone, with faith in Him alone, this church is dead. Every single saint in this room is part of a much bigger plan than your own salvation and glorification. You are part of the body of Christ, a body that is made up of millions and millions of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation whose ultimate end is to be made pure and holy into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 25-27, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Why? That He might present to Himself the church in all of her glory. So God is taking you a grain of salt, slowly transforming and molding you so that He can take the whole lump of clay, the whole church, and present her to Himself. He's got to sanctify and, and, and conform and transform each individual part so that He can present the entire body to Himself, pure and holy. Being saved means being placed into the body of Christ. God's grace is shown towards you as an individual by placing you into the corporate body of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so what is the church? What is the church? Number three, the church. The church is the redeemed redeemed and so happy in Jesus. So this is where all this hope will begin to unfold and become more clear. The church is not a people seeking redemption. The church is not a people seeking redemption. 
We're not here this morning hoping that if we keep singing songs, if we keep praying, if we keep doing good works, if we keep taking the sacraments, doing our Hail Marys, that God will be pleased with us. Right now as I preach at 10 minutes to 10, there are thousands and thousands of people filling massive buildings, singing songs and performing religious acts in the hopes that God will look at them and say, God, look at me. Look what I'm doing for you. God, what I'm doing is making you bound to accept me and to bring me into your kingdom. And here in this room, there are 150 people who by the grace of God have come here not to get redeemed, but to worship because you've been redeemed. To lift up holy hands out of praise, not out of guilt. Out of joy at the conclusion that Christ went to the cross for our guilt so that we could come to church because of His grace. And when you understand this, it changes everything. Acts 20.28 Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. God purchased the church with His blood. God doesn't have blood last time I looked except when He becomes a man and He goes to the cross so that He can redeem sinners who drag and defile His image. He goes to the cross so that He can purchase. It's a a one-time act where He gives His life and sheds His blood so that you can have eternal life. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. 1 Corinthians 1.29.31 No man may boast before God, but by His doing you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's why we're here this morning. We're boasting in Christ. The the gospel allows, it allows people to take their eyes off themselves. Where all the multitudes are just working their guts to try to figure out how to get holy. And God says, we come here this morning, we take our eyes off ourselves, and we put them on the Son who did everything and who has imputed His righteousness to us and given His grace to us. And so now we boast in Him. And that whole text is almost ironic. How do you boast in something that you didn't do? What what does Paul mean in Galatians 6.14 when he says, May it never be that I would boast in anything but the cross. And the whole point is that I didn't do anything. I'm boasting in something I didn't do. I'm boasting in what Christ has done. And I'm glorying in what Christ has done for me. So Acts 20, 28, 1 Corinthians 1, 29, 31, Ephesians 1, 7 tell us that redemption and forgiveness are not progressive, but they're completed actions. As a church, we can and we must boast in what has been accomplished by Christ. 
We are not spectators. We're not even participators waiting to see if Christ will really be able to save us in the end. We're the church of the redeemed who gathers to boast in Christ for all that He's done for His bride. I don't think it would be any more fitting to preach on the church this morning than to show that the church is the purpose of God's grace. The church is, is, the, is the people which God lavishes His grace upon. I'm not forcing grace and the church together. I'm saying that the overflow of God's grace produces the church. The overflow of God's grace produces the church. The purpose of saving grace is to make a church of redeemed sinners whose utter transformation can only be explained by the grace of God. And so grace is the foundation of the church. Uh, Perhaps this morning... You might argue. You might argue and say, you know, Cornerstone doesn't need to hear about God's grace towards this church. You know, they need to hear about Revelation 3. They need to hear about how, you know, God is going to spew uh, the lukewarm out of his mouth. Or maybe you're saying, you know, I don't need to hear about God's grace. I need to hear about his holiness. I need the fear of God put in me. I'm struggling with so much sin that if I hear any more about the grace of God, I'm just going to turn into a libertine. I don't need more grace. I need the fear of God put in me. And to this I want to read to you John Owen. You can read along. He says this, Having a loving fellowship with the Father is very much neglected by Christians. Ignorance of our mercies and our privilege is our sin as well as the cause of all our troubles. We do not listen to the voice of the Spirit that we may know the things freely given to us by God. This makes Christians, and I might add the church, sad when they might be rejoicing. It makes them weak when they could be strong. The greatest burden in the lives of the saints is that their hearts do not constantly delight and rejoice in God. There is still in them a resistance to walking close with God. Why is this? It is because they neglect having loving fellowship with the Father. But the more we see of God's love, so much more shall we delight in Him. All that we learn of God will only frighten us away from Him if we do not see Him as a loving and merciful to us. But if your heart is taken up with the Father's love as the chief property of His nature, it cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered, and embraced by Him. This, if anything, will arouse our desire to make our eternal home with God. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? So do this. Set your, thought, set your thoughts on the eternal love of the father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water and you will soon find its stream sweet and delightful. You who used to run from God will not now be able, even for one second, to keep at any distance from Him. And again, thinking much of the Father's love is a powerful motive to holiness and leads the soul into holiness. And so what is going to cause... The church, and what's going to cause this church to exalt God is not His wrath. It's not His wrath. God's wrath is what puts fear and causes you to kneel down before the cross and cry out for grace. 
The wrath of God is the announcement that brings you trembling before the cross. But one time, you look at the cross and you see who paid for your sin and you put your trust and you rest in Christ. And now it's God's grace that motivates you to live for Him and to worship Him. This is Paul's mounting argument and concluding argument in all of Romans 8. Paul is not calling the church to fight sin because of the wrath of God. He is calling the church to fight sin because of the grace of God. Romans 8, 1-2 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul is telling us to be motivated not by God's wrath, but by God's mercy and His grace. And so we come to church this morning, not out of guilt, not out of shame, not so much to get right with God, but to worship God. Let me try to make this more clear, right? You know, I love my wife, but I, I fail to do that always. Sometimes I sin. Sometimes I say things that hurt my wife much more often than I, I, I would like to. Now, let's say when I say something that hurts my wife, if every time I sinned against her, I just crumbled in fear that she was going to divorce me. Every time a sharp word came out of my mouth, I'm afraid she's, I'm going to come home some day from a long day of study and I'm going to find the bags are packed and she's gone and the kids are nowhere in sight. If, if I had a marriage like that, I would be utterly miserable. I would live in constant fear. I live in a marriage where I do sin. And yet, the purpose is not wrath. The purpose of, of the church, of coming to the church, is, is not being fearful of God's wrath. It's not fearful that we've got to get right with God because our sins have separated from us again this week. We come to church to worship God because no matter what we do, and that is a qualified statement, no matter what we do, God will not separate us from Himself. My, when I sin against my wife, you know what? The, the purpose now is to get right with my wife. Why? Because I love fellowship with her. I don't try to get right with my wife so that she won't leave me. I get right with my wife because I love a relationship with her and I love spending time with her. And until I get right with her, then it's real cold in the house. And there's just sort of a, a fake everything's good at dinner time. We're eating and pretending like everything's okay, but it's not really. And we come to church that way and, and, and it's not right with God, but it's, it's not, we don't come to church because we're afraid God's going to condemn us. You get right immediately with God. Why? So that you can have 
sweet fellowship with God. That's what motivates us as a church. God's not going to divorce you because you sin against Him. And so you get right with God. You just confess your sins. It's that simple. 1 John 1, nine. It's that simple. You confess your sins to God. And He forgives you. And you know what? We read that text and we say, it's too easy. There's got to be more. I've got I've to be more penitent. My prayer has got to be more heartfelt. I've got to pray longer. You know what? I've got to wait until the guilt goes away. And God says, you're missing the whole point. I'm not forgiving you because you're penitent. I'm not forgiving you because you're sorrowful enough. I'm forgiving you because Christ already paid for all of your sin. And so now you're repenting not to get saved. You're repenting just to restore and get restored fellowship with me. And it changes, it changes the entire way you live the Christian life when you get that. It changes the entire reasons that you come to church. And we get so introspective about our relationship with God. We get so introspective about our walk. And, and our, our, we feel good about ourselves when we think we had a good week. And then we feel horrible and we, we're like turned into a spiritual ascetics and we, we beat ourselves and we, we buffet our bodies and we walk around miserable and mourning and weeping. And then we think that once we do enough of that, then we can get restored with God. And that's works righteousness. That's people in the church committing works righteousness. And that's why some of you are miserable. Because you think your wife's going to leave you because you sinned. Because you think God's going to divorce you because you sinned. And that's not God's heart. Christ went to the cross for guilt so that we can go to the cross for grace. The cross that Jesus bore is not the cross that Christ commands you and I to carry. The cross that Jesus bore is not the cross that Christ commands you and I to carry. Jesus bore an infinitely different cross than the one you and I are to carry. The cross that that Jesus bore was a cross of atonement. It was a cross of propitiation. It was a cross that paid for your sin. If you die on that kind of a cross, you will be on it for eternity. You die on a different cross You die on a cross that kills your life so that Christ can live in you. You die to self. That's what the cross you carry is. It's death to self so that you can really live. Not atonement so you can really live. You you die to all your fleshly pursuits and all your former selfish ambitions so that you can really live in Christ. Not so that you can get right with God. And my point in all this again is that this is a church that's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And and when you get that, it it changes your worship. It changes why you love God. It changes how you relate to Him. And when you sin, you don't think, what do I have to do to get right with God? Other than, remember what Christ has done. 
and worship God because of Christ. That's, it's a church of redemption. God saved you so you would see His manifold grace and you would fall on your knees, not in agony and fear, but in, in worship and glory. And so it comes to point four. Scratch out five there. It's point four. If conformity to Christ is the goal of the church, how do we get there? If conformity to Christ is the goal of the church, how do we get there? Based on this argument upon the verses I gave you previously, that God's end and salvation is conforming you and I to the likeness of Christ. So how do we get there? This will make sense in a moment. In the study of God, systematic theologians ask the question, how does God relate to the universe? How does God relate to the universe? That is, what role does God play in all that He has created? And the purpose of that question is really to look at the ways in which God Himself relates and controls all things. And the answer is broken down into four parts. God relates to the universe through His decree, through creation, through preservation, and through providence. Now, His decree is that He planned all events out in eternity past. His creation is He, he brought in, created all things. Preservation is He upholds all things. And then providence refers to the continuous agency of God whereby He causes all the events of the physical and moral universe to conform to His will. You've got to get this for a second. Let me read this again. Providence refers to the continuous agency of God whereby He causes all events of the physical and moral universe to conform to His will. What is important about this aspect is that God in His sovereign plan has decided to mostly use secondary causes to bring about His eternal decrees. Secondary causes means that God brings about His providential acts through secondary means, through events and people. So let me illustrate how the Bible illustrates it. Genesis 50-20, Joseph sold into slavery. Genesis 37, he sold into slavery sold, bought by Pharaoh, thrown into prison, gets out of prison, ends up becoming the most exalted man in all of Egypt. And we ask the question, well, what was, why? What is the purpose of that story in Genesis? And, and Joseph, to his brothers, who are afraid that Joseph is going to want to kill them now, their father's dead, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. For what purpose? To bring about this current event that God would preserve many people alive. So, God's plan was going to bring a famine, wipe out lots of people, but preserve the Israelites through Joseph's brothers performing wickedness, which would bring about Joseph being highly exalted in Egypt, so that Israel could be saved, so that the line of the Messiah could be preserved, so that Christ could go to the cross. Those are secondary causes. Acts 2.23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross. God did not himself nail his son to the cross. Evil men nailed his son to the cross. That was God's decree. That was God's plan. Okay. Secondary causes. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Romans 29 is there again. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would bring the firstborn among many brethren. We know Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God. Okay, we talked about this in Pillars last week. This is really a profound text. Everybody knows Romans 8.28. Everyone can quote it word for word. But let me ask you, what is the good? 
that God promises to bring into your life? What is the good? Is it God promises to bring about the good of a horrible circumstance you're in? Is that the good? Been corresponding with my mom. I have a good friend uh, back in my hometown. In my age, I have a little boy. He's seven months old. Two months ago, a few months ago, uh, playing with the little boy, looked down at his leg. They noticed a, uh, a black spot on his leg. Take a man, biopsy, he's got cancer, he's got tumors in his leg. So, little guy, six months old, yeah, you know, as much radiation as a little baby can handle, it's not working. And so they have to, cut, they have to take his leg off, a little above the ankle, right? So you can imagine, this guy, he's a high school pastor. Imagine this young family, you know, newly married, little boy, and they get this baby back six hours later, and he's missing his leg, he's missing his foot, right? But they're thankful. You know, they're thankful that it's just his leg. A few weeks later, they go back, and the doctors find out that they didn't get all the cancer, and it went higher. And they had to go back, take him back in, and they had to cut off the seven-month-old baby's leg below the knee. And so let me ask you, you know, when you, when you go to minister to someone like that, and you pull out Romans 8.28, and you say, oh, God's going God's to work it out for good, and they say, well, how? What do you mean? Is, is God going to make his little stump grow back into a leg? Is God going to take his cancer and, and miraculously do something? Is, is, the, is the good that God promises in Romans 8.28 to take your hellish circumstances and to make them pleasing somehow? That's not, that's not what Romans 8.20 is talking about. The good is in verse 29. The good is that God predestined you and I to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so God promises in, in 8.28 that He will use every circumstance in your life no matter how hellish, no matter how difficult, no matter how devastating, He's going to use those to make you like Christ. Because the greatest good that He can do for you is to make you like His Son. There is no greater gift that God could ever give any person in this room than to make them like Christ. And so... When hard times come into your life and you can recognize that God is putting you under the trial, then you can say this is God's eternal decree coming into fruition and God is using secondary causes, secondary events, the losing of my leg, the loss of my child, the loss of my leg, the loss of my husband, the loss of my wife. God is using all of these things to bring about a greater good to make me like Christ. secondary causes through events, but there's also, more fitting for this morning, secondary causes through the church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. 
And He gave some as apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There it is again in verse 13. There is God's telos end for you. More specifically, there is God's telos end for the church to conform the church to the likeness of His Son. How is God going to do that? He's going to do that through you. God does that through you. Verse 12. I'm preaching this morning. James preaches... Every, all these men stand up here. You go to flocks, you hear the word. Why? It's for the equipping of the saints. Why? For the work of service. Why? So that the church can build itself up. The church, by God's grace, is using the church to make people look like Christ. The men and women of the church are the secondary causes God uses to conform people to Jesus. There's no I in church I was going to make that one of my points. There's no I in church. In America, the most highly valued treasure is the personal pursuit of happiness with liberty and justice for all. And we have taken this individualistic mindset and we've crammed it right through the doors of the church where everyone is coming in here and they're consumed with about his or her little Christian life. And everything is about my needs. Everything is about my walk with God. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. If that's the way it was supposed to be, you could sit in your room every Sunday, you could just sit there, you could turn on an MP3, and you could listen to a sermon, and you could get sanctified. That is not the church. And there are churches that are going that way. But that's not the church. The Word of God is not just so that you can just get sanctified. The Word of God so that you can get equipped so that you can be an instrument, a tool in the hand of God to shape and conform and transform other brothers and sisters into conforming with Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose for you. That's why we're here this morning. You're God's secondary causes to build up His church. I don't know where I heard this story. Maybe some of you guys will... I'm going to slaughter it. I don't know where I heard it. But it was a story, and it had to do with... you know. I'll make it up. People walk in and there's this, there's this big banquet table and everyone's sitting around it and they're all dead. They're all dead. So these, these people walk in, they're looking at, looking at what has happened and they look at this table and there's all these people and they notice that the silverware is incredibly long. The spoons are like three feet long. And the forks are like you know, four feet long. And they, and they look and they're like, what is, what is this? And then they look at the people's arms. And their arms are like this big. They don't have arms. They've got a little arm. They've got a little hand coming out the side of their shoulder. All right? And they're all dead. The question is, how did they die? They, they all starved to death. You know why, right? Because they had these little stubby arms and these long spoons. And nobody could get the spoon into, the other, into their mouth. How could they have lived? They would have kept each other alive. 
if they just would have taken the spoon and filled it up and, and, and put it into the other person's mouth across the table. If they just would have served one another. If they just would have been able to look outside of their self. If they just would have been able to look outside of their own self-preservation. Then that whole table would have been kept alive. And if the church would just look outside of itself, if, if individuals would just look outside of themselves and stop just trying to shovel all the good into their own mouth, but take the riches of Christ and feed one another and have a heart that wants to minister to one another. See, that's why God makes you weak. He makes you weak so you can't do it for yourself. He makes you weak so that others have to serve you. He makes you weak so that others have to serve you and others have to labor for your sanctification so that others have to labor for your conformity to Christ. And we've got to be a church that shovels the truth into one another's mouth. We've got to be a church that wants to work upon one another. Ephesians 4.16 The church is equipped according to the proper working of each individual part. And it's not until each person is working that the body is built up. God's secondary cause this morning to make us into the likeness of Christ is you. I need you this morning. I need you this morning because I don't have it all together. this This is really where All of our suits, all of our ties, all of our degrees, all of us in in this this white-collar church, we come in here on Sundays and we look like we've got it all together. We're trying our best to seem like everything's good. We're trying our best to keep a smile on our face. But we know that that's not the case. And we know that there's people hurting. And we know that every one of us has got our great struggles the church isn't about coming, trying to make it look like you got it all together. The church is about confessing your weaknesses so that others can minister to you, so that others can serve you. That's what the church is about. It's about me longing to see you conform to Christ, and so I serve you, and I labor my guts out up here. It's not about me serving because I've got to get right with God. It's that I've been made right with God and so now I serve. I serve you and I make it my ambition because it's God's ambition to make you like Christ, for you to make me like Christ. Do you know what you're serving for? Do you know what the purpose of the church is? Do you know why we come on Sunday mornings? Because there are means to an end of helping one another grow into Christ. We have first hour to be mightily encouraged by the word. We have second hour so that we might be more equipped so that we can serve one another. But it's not enough. And so we got flock ministry. we got flock ministry so you can, you can love on each other and so you can get raw about your weaknesses, so you can get real about your struggles, and so you can get help from people. You don't just get help by sitting in your room reading books about the spiritual life. You get help by people loving you and telling you, brother, I see this in your life. Or you get help by saying, brothers, i got a real problem. Every day I come home from work and I'm just not happy. And it's, and it's burdening my family. Tell me, what, what, encourage me, remind me, refresh me, reprove me, rebuke me, how I can come home and be a man who just wants to serve my family.
and love my family. And so we've got flock ministries so people can build relationships, so they can serve one another, so they can take that long spoon with that stubby arm and put it in someone else's mouth. And then we've got means like church discipline where we use these God-given means so that people can be restored, so that people who are straying and wandering from the grace of God can be brought back into the love of God, so that the church itself can remain pure. I won't go through that. We've got missions so that, so that this, this body of believers who are loving and basking in the grace of God can take the grace of God where it's not, and they can deliver that truth to others. God loves the church because she is the bride of His Son. There is no other reason she is not loved by God because she is beautiful. You are not loved by God because you are so faithful, because you are so submissive, because you are loved by God because of your worship or because of your adoration is so exquisite, because you're such incredible servants, because we're so accomplished, we've accomplished so much to bring God glory. No, God loves the church and God loves this church because when He looks at the church, He looks past all her flaws and all her defects and failures and He sees who the church is being made into, namely into the likeness of His Son. And when you grasp that God's greatest good for you and for this church is to make us into the likeness of His Son, it will change your entire life. It will change all of your duties This is God's greatest joy in us, changing us into a son. Therefore, this has got to become our greatest joy in each other. We've got to come to the place where we see and we love God's God's pursuit of making us like Christ. So I pray, I pray that you would grasp this this morning. God's grace is manifest through the church basking, reveling in His grace. And His grace is manifest in a church that's not just seeking, not just pursuing their own little personal relationship, but a multitude of saints who are consumed and burdened with the lives and the souls of one another. Let's pray. Father, we praise You again. We come not to a throne of wrath. That we come to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. And this is the church of Christ. This is the body of Christ. This is Your beloved with whom You're well pleased. Not because we did anything pleasing, but because Christ has made us pleasing by His blood. That we're a church of redemption. And so, we lift high the cross of Christ every Sunday. And under that cross, under the banner of Your love, we love one another. Lord, conform us. We pray. We we pray the prayer, God, conform us to Your Son. But we get off our dust and we labor. So, Lord, grant that these truths would be illumined. They're not illumined if we just we just understand Your grace. They're illumined when we put Your grace into action and we, we love and serve one another and we get involved in, in flock ministry. And we get involved in ministry and we see that the end of these ministries is to, is to conform people to Jesus. So we thank You for the church. We thank You that You are pleased with her. We thank You that You care for her. 
May you will continue to shepherd her. We pray for this church. Oh Lord, do mighty things. Do mighty things when people's lives are in turmoil. Use these people to remind each other that the greatest good is that you're making us like your son. We thank you for all that you're going to do. In your name we pray.